Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Take a listen to the hit podcast, Better Off. Jill Schlesinger, Emmy-nominated business analyst and senior CFP board advisor, tackles uncomfortable and sometimes controversial money and investing issues without the financial jargon to get to the heart of what's important for everyone to know. Sounds like kind of a familiar theme. Jill interviews guests like Jason Zwig, Nicole Lappin, and Michael Lewis to uncover surprising insights and provide actionable information so that you can make the most of your money. The best part of the show, Jill takes listener phone calls every week to help unravel real-world financial issues. Again, this is sounding familiar. I have a feeling if you like this show, you might like that show. So search for Better Off wherever you listen to your podcast. That's Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Hi, I'm Anna-Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This is a show about messy coalitions, awkward conversations, and the limits of difference and allyship. And this week, one of our guests is someone I've wanted to have on for a long time because he embodies what some people probably would consider a contradiction in terms. He is a democratic socialist veteran. His name is Nate Bethay. He's the host of What a Hell of a Way to Die, which focuses on military and veterans issues from a leftist perspective. And we're going to talk uh, fetishization of the military. And I think his opinions will be of interest to people who are following both the Kelly controversy and sort of in general, the way that we on the left and we in the media treat the military and veterans. But first up, a name you are probably familiar with, John Lovett. Uh, he is going to join me to talk through a question slash comment slash idea that a listener sent in having to do with the place of gay men in the Me Too conversation. So welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. It's great yeah. to be back, Anna. Well, you are you were especially requested oh. by our uh, listener who sent in um Sort of a comment slash thought slash question, and uh, we'll play it right now. Cool. Hi, I'm Darren. I'm 24 from Lincoln, Nebraska. And my question comes from Lovett's brief discussion on Love It or Leave It in his past episode, where he described observing straightness from the outside and kind of being able to move in between groups of straight males and females very fluidly. So I think my question's just about explaining these kind of straight dynamics because I've not really understood things like the open secret that this hashtag me too is kind of bringing up. And I would just um, like to be able to better have these conversations being in like the gay position that I am. 
Thank you. In the Me Too conversation, what do you think the role of like gay, you know, cis men might be in these spaces? I think on the one hand, because gay guys are not, don't have a sexual relationship with straight women, that they can see when um, attraction and the peculiar dynamics of, of sexual relationships between men and women lead straight guys to have blind spots about how they talk about women, about how they objectify women. And I think you can you can push back on that. I don't think it's like the job of... A, no. of a of a gay guy and a group of straight guys to like to, to sort of like to kind of I don't know I you're don't know you're not the police you're right. I mean you're I don't not, think right. that you're saying that I right mean. but like you know I I remember there was like a I had a like years ago I remember there there was like a bunch of guys like they were they were talking about one of them was talking about um a girl that 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 he had been dating and it didn't end well and you know he said like oh she's crazy and I just, I, I, and I remember saying something like, something along the lines of like, yeah, it's so weird. You pretended uh, to have really strong feelings for her and then dated for a while and then acted like it was nothing and that you didn't care anymore and you just wanted to go away. And she got mad, you know, like that's, it's so weird that she had that reaction to you being a dick, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, like the kind of like kind of blind spots that 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 you see, um, you know, I had a conversation with another friend of mine who's a, a writer out here, and we were talking about Me Too, and uh, he was saying how he commiserated uh, that he under that 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 commiserated is the wrong word, but basically he didn't even he didn't say it in a way that like he felt bad, but he was saying like he is he said I've been Billy Bushed, and mm. I was like, what do you mean? He goes like, well, I've been in a meeting with somebody who I was going to possibly work for, you know, a powerful person who like uh, uh, that was going to either, you know, hire him for a writing gig or maybe pick up, you know, take a pitch out to pitch a pilot, right? It's somebody who has the ability to like really help his career. And, you know, they're talking about the idea, they're talking about the concept. And all of a sudden the, the topic turns to actresses and women. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, <laughs> like, rating and stories and, you know, crass, vulgar shit in a meeting. And he was saying very honestly, he's like, what do you think I'm going to do in that meeting? You think I'm going to be like, excuse me, can we please be respectful? He's like, no, I play along because that's what you do. Like, that's how you be one of the guys in that moment and kind of, you know, build camaraderie because this is somebody who's going to, you know, maybe support your work and help you get a show on the air. Um, and I thought that like sort of spoke to that dynamic that exists behind closed doors. Uh, and then on the other hand, I think there's a lot of harassment, misogyny, and uh, sort of bad power dynamics that have absolutely nothing to do with um, sex, you know, that that gay guys are just, can be just as vulnerable to the... Um, to sexism in the way they, in the way women are treated in the office. I mean, this is specifically to gay men, not not gay women, but like that not being someone who's going to sexually harass somebody, not someone who's going to, you know, use their power to try to get a woman to go home with them doesn't mean you're immune to uh, sexism, sexism, only listening to a guy's idea, you know, not viewing the way that that sort of acceding to the systemic 
sexism and misogyny in workplaces that 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 often holds women back. So I think being aware of the fact that you're vulnerable to that, even though you feel a little bit like you're outside of parts of this conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I think it's an important uh, thing to note in this conversation that, you know, just because you're gay doesn't mean that you're not, if you're a man, um, doesn't mean that you're not uh, part of the system of patriarchy. Yeah. And I think that, like, gay men in particular um, might benefit from reading, like, Helen Rosner's piece that we talked about last week, which is that what can you do besides literally not sexually harassing women to help women? Because well, all of her suggestions had nothing to do with sex. Right. You know, there were things like um, what you sort of referenced a little bit ago. Uh, who are you listening to in meetings, right? Yeah. Um, if you're in an all-male space, and this is something maybe gay men are particularly sensitive to. If you're in an all-male space, ask yourself why it's an all-male space. For gay guys, there might be some very good reasons for that. <laughs> but in a business setting, perhaps, um, you might want to ask yourself, you know, why why is it just men sitting around this table? You know, um, and things like supporting freedom of choice, um, things like uh, uh, elevating women's ideas. Do you think that, that, that there's something to the fact that I uh, host a podcast with uh, John and Tommy uh, once a week, my, my two handsome bros? <laughs> Yeah, the Brobamas. Um, uh, I appreciate that you guys reach out to have uh, more voices around the table. Yeah. Um, you, but on the other hand, like you can't help who you are, right? Like you guys are the people with the experience you have and the talents that you have. So you have the show that you have. You know, it's funny too. So, like my first, like I, I had like some shorter professional experiences, you know, whatever. I was a temp. I was like a junior press aide. I was an intern on, the, on, uh, on a campaign. But like my first sort of really long-term job was as a speechwriter for Hillary. Mm-hmm. And that was an office uh, led by women, right? It was led by Hillary Clinton, by uh, Tamara Lozado, who was the chief of staff, by, you know, uh, uh, a, a woman at, uh, as the legislative director, a woman communications director, sort of, it was a uh, a women-led organization, which was like my first experience, uh, my first real, the first real kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, job where I like kind of was around for a long time. And I don't know, it really stuck with me that, that the qualities in other places where uh, the majority of leadership positions are men, like you kind of see that, oh, it's, it's that the qualities being elevated are simply qualities decided by men to -hmm. be the qualities of leadership, you know, that anyway, I don't know. I don't know. No, that's actually, that's, that's true. There's actually social science research to back this up. Um, that in organizations that are primarily led by men, even if there are women in positions of power, the values that they uh, hold and the kinds of people that they promote tend to be people that fit into that more masculine paradigm. Yeah. And there is this there is actually kind of a tipping point, though, that if you get enough women in positions of power, uh, the qualities that people are looking for and the genders that they elevate do change. You know, so, but it's, but it's, you know, it is a system that not, you know, it takes a, a tipping point of people to being uh, aware of it and working against it for anything to change. Like, and that's why tokenism doesn't work. And it is interesting because it's like, it's hard to articulate because you almost feel as though, is it wrong to say that like, wait a second, like there is, there is maleness being elevated here because it, and that, but that that women in positions of authority bring a different kind of leadership 
Like, it's almost like it, it feels like you're kind of, I don't know, like how are that saying like, wait, this is different, that there is a substantive difference between um, whatever, like kind of archetypal maleness in leadership and archetypal femaleness, whatever you would call that, that that is a difference like that, 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 that almost like kind of saying so feels like you're acceding to something. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it feels like, well, you're admitting something which is uncomfortable. Right. But, but it's interesting. I, I love that you brought up the example of working in Hillary's office. And, you know, we're seeing now some coverage of a someone who is very influential in Hillary Clinton coverage uh, turning out to be um, kind of a jerk. <laughs> uh, and people are pointing out that Mark Halperin's coverage of Hillary looks different now. Right. Yeah. And I think that's also a question we need to ask of men in general. Like, I often wonder if you, because right now, I mean, most of the networks are doing a pretty good job, I think, of having women present in conversations, but not all the time. You can still turn on the TV and see nothing but male faces in your Brady Bunch box, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I do wonder what would be different if we had a truly equal representation in the media, how Hillary coverage would have been different. I don't know if it would have been that different, but- but it probably would have had some differences. And also, what would the coverage of Trump have been like if, it, if there were mostly or, you know, equal number of women right. uh, covering him? And it does seem as though the answer, like where you land is like is obvious, which is you want you want <laughs> both of those <laughs> perspectives re- re- recognized and you want uh, you want the, the people around the table making decisions and the people on air to be representative, not just as a token of diversity, but because it actually does enliven the conversation and bring both kinds of leadership that you need, you know? It's yeah. like, it's and such also, an obvious I mean, we, thing. Yeah, like I was talking, this is a conversation I had with Van last week too. Um, the thing about diversity is it's not just about um, making sure it looks good. It's about bringing um, perspectives to the table that might make your product better. Yeah. Right. Like you might just have better coverage. Like if more black people have been involved in mainstream coverage of Trump, I think it would have been they would have seen things. In fact, I mean, you've probably had these same conversations. My friends who are people of color saw Trump's rise much quicker than I did, saw his appeal much quicker than I did. Yeah, that's right. Um, So if you bring in people of different sexual orientations and also people of different abilities, and I would say that people with disabilities are way, 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 way underrepresented um, in most of our national conversations. Probably, I mean, I don't want to say more than any other group, but you, when's the last time you saw someone with a disability on a cable news show who wasn't talking about disabilities specifically? Well, look, I mean, it's actually, you know, it's going on right now, right? Betsy DeVos is steadily undermining protections for people with disabilities at the Department of Education. And it's covered, uh, if at all, kind of um, as an aside, right? But, mm-hmm. but of, of course, like who's making these decisions about what to cover, who's going to be on the air describing the story. It's almost certainly, it's very few people uh, living with a, a disability. Right. So, I mean, again, so I just want to come back to like reminding people like this isn't just about show. This is about making a better product and being able to make better decisions. Um, It's not just 
people talk about, I guess I get sensitive to the, to, to accusations of virtue signaling or whatever, but like there's real like concrete reasons why it's important to listen to more than one kind of person. And yeah. also look where we, look where we got with our culture listening to basically just white men, you know, I mean. Right. It, and it, well, it's it, funny too. It's like almost like there's so many organizations that because they wanted to look good and they wanted to virtue signal and they were afraid of bad press diversified, you know, Mm-hmm. Not, not, you know, but recognizing the value of diversity, but at the same time doing it out of pressure, right? Like make, you know, worrying over it because the immediate concern was about not looking too white or not looking too male. But the end result has been a much better product yeah. because, you know, and like, I, you know, I think of like also like new media organizations, like, like, you know, people make fun of BuzzFeed all the time, but like on the news side, BuzzFeed has since since sort of Ben Smith started kind of building this news organization, elevated so many women and people of color who have made their coverage so much more um, uh, uh, expansive in a good and way. inclusive in a way and that, smart yeah. and and uh, discovered like discovered people who a generation ago ago would have never had that kind of position and would never have been recognized in that way. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're we land in a good place <laughs> out of a kind of a strange beginning. Yeah. Um, but uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I always love having you on. It's good to talk. Thank you for having me. This was good. So I was telling you about FrameBridge. I used FrameBridge services to finally frame. I've been married for two years now. And one of the wedding presents I got, which you have encouraged me to think of just as a genuine thought uh, from Obama himself, was a... Lovely note of congratulations from President Obama and Michelle. That's cool. And yeah, it is really cool. Even my husband, who was still kind of Republican at the time, like thought it was cool. And I think he's going to be the one to hang this beautiful framed note in his office, which I sent to Framebridge. So I think a lot of people understand that Framebridge works really well with like Instagram photos and photos you've already uploaded. But I used the service to send in you know, my existing real world stuff. And it was great. You know, they sent me a prepaid um, package and I sent it to them. And then I got some emails from a designer who gave me options about what kinds of frames and mats I might want to use. That's cool. And then when we finished up, he sent me a note that said, by the way, I think this is just a really cool thing, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that you have this. I'm, you know, it's it must be very special to you. And I said, yes, that is nice. Anna, I have a question. Do you think that like it's not even a question? You couldn't hang the same thing if it was from the current president. You just couldn't even hang it in your house. Oh, God. No. Isn't that crazy? It's so sad. Like you just can't. It's like everything that everything that's going to come out of here out of this thing is going to be like. All the things that were kind of something that was cool because of the, like, like when I was a kid, you wrote a letter to the president because like they were teaching about civics and like, I don't want to, I wouldn't want my kids to write a letter to this president. I wouldn't want them to, I wouldn't want them to. No, I'm sorry. We're going to teach you about, you're going to have to civics by imagination. Um, I'm really curious. I want, I do do want kind of a truth squatting on every single letter that they read from the podium that's supposedly from a child. I really want to know how all of those get there. Uh, But anyway, Framebridge, my note from Obama, which is lovely and, um, Framebridge took care of it, and they will frame your stuff. Again, they will do your electronic photos, things that you can send them from your Instagram feed, or you can do it in the real world process. And it is a lot cheaper, just tons cheaper, hundreds uh, of dollars to frame it at a store. Prices at Framebridge start at $39, and all shipping is free. And then, you know what? I have a promo code, John. Oh, good. Uh, yes, it is. It is friends. And you will get 15% off your first order at framebridge.com with promo code friends. Framebridge.com promo code friends. 
Go there. Use it. And up next, Nate Bethay. He is a writer and the co-host of What a Hell of a Way to Die, a podcast focusing on military and veterans issues from a leftist perspective. And he has a resume that we actually have to talk about, and I'll let him do that. How are you, Nate? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm really happy to have you on the show. I've wanted to have you on for a while because I'm a fan of your podcast. Um, so here's a funny thing that I'm going to do, and, and maybe we'll talk about why I have to do it and why it's funny and why it's a reason I'm having you on, which is that I come from a military family myself. Okay. Um, my father is a veteran. All my uncles are veterans. Both my grandparents, grandfathers are veterans. Uh, this um, is basically the same. Yep. Yeah. So first, I'm first generation non-military. Yep. Uh, and I lay that all out there because we live at a moment where you're not allowed to criticize the military unless you can have some bona fide connection to it, I feel like. Yeah, and no, that, that definitely sounds right. <laughs> so I'm playing into that by laying out my bona fides. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, there's an extent to which I, uh, I sort of have to do the same thing, even though I've been in the military and you know, I, I spent seven years in the army, but I have to sort of make that known in some capacity, lest I be mistaken as someone who apparently has no right to criticize, even though that's kind of an absurd proposition. Yeah. Do you want to start with that? I mean, should we start with just talking about General Kelly and, and the fairly terrifying um, implications sure. of, of, of what he said and what the White House has said about him. Um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be good. Yeah. I will say that uh, people may snicker or scratch their heads at the idea that you are a host of a leftist military podcast and that you are associated you know, with Democrats, Socialists of America. I will say that my dad's a big lefty, you know, so the idea that you can be in the military and be a progressive does not freak me out personally. <laughs> No, you know, we had a conversation about this actually on our last episode because there had been something circulating about, um, you know, a, a special forces veteran saying that he's going to speak for all veterans and say, stop trotting out supply sergeants and support personnel. The true fighters, the true gunslingers are all Republicans and we all hate you, basically. And I, I, that, that's just so absurd because, quite honestly, there are plenty of people even in where I've in units I've served in who are they're getting closer and closer to the, you know, actually being in combat arms. You know, I mean, I was an infantry officer and I served with people that were uh, in units like Ranger Regiment or in forces. And quite honestly, there's plenty of people that are progressive or left-leaning or even full-on lefty. It's just that I think they understand their operational environment well enough that uh, it's difficult to be overt with a political orientation like that in the military, whereas there's not so much of a prohibition (laughs) against being overtly right-wing. Right, exactly. And um, also, I think uh, most folks in the military somewhat understandably seem to be, from my experience, relatively, I'm not going to use the word apolitical, Mm -hmm. but Neutral. Yeah, I, I actually used the word apolitical recently to describe it. I, that, that, quite honestly, yes, you're correct. They, there are a number of people who are outspoken, but I think in terms of, in my experience at least, most people don't really have an opinion either way, aren't particularly engaged in the political process. And that's probably representative of a large swath of Americans. It's just that, um, unfortunately, the people who are outspoken in the military are oftentimes very much on the right, or they are trotted out to be used by right-leaning people, you know, in in politics in America, as we're seeing more and more in these past couple of weeks. Like when I've talked to my dad about it, um, he said that when you're actually, you know, serving, he's definitely gotten more political after he got out of the military. It see, it's, makes more sense for for you as an individual to kind of disengage from it because you're just 
mean, as we say, following orders. Like it's yep. it's good not to have an opinion of the orders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and sometimes you're you're uh, you're putting yourself in harm's way if you want to go out with an opinion about the orders because, I mean, ultimately, so much of it can't be changed. You're not really in a position. You you can try to fight it if you really disagree with it, but oftentimes that's a losing battle, and so you have to kind of. Um, confine yourself to that which you can affect and that which is right in front of you. And as a result, I mean, I, I found that it's strange to me more that because of social media and because of me being out now, I'm coming to realize how much I don't have in common with many of the people that I served with as far as like their opinions go. But as far as like us being in a unit together, that never came up because we were more concerned with what mission we were going on and like, is our truck broken? <laughs> or do we have the assets we need? That kind of a thing. It just wasn't, it wasn't in your immediate sort of set of needs or concerns. And also what you can affect is the most important thing, right? So like your individual sense of following, you know, military uniform code of military justice, um, following orders when it is appropriate to follow orders. Like that's much more important than your opinion of the mission as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, one of the things that's always been interesting to me is that, um, most people, at least most junior enlisted, most junior NCOs that I would work with, um, and to some extent junior officers, though they were maybe a little bit more circumspect about it, would, would very, very much say, like, I care about our unit. I care about what's happening. I care about us being successful in the sense of us getting home, us uh, accomplishing what we've set out to accomplish. But in the grand scheme of things, the actual larger conflict, the larger war, the larger operation is probably it's, – it's, it's not going to work. It's Or it's bad. It's a, it's a bad idea. It's doomed to failure, et cetera. That's not to say people were defeatist. They just weren't really invested in the, the grand and scheme. They just were invested in what was in front of them. Which again, like I think it makes sense sort of psychologically and maybe even as a program (laughs) to feel that way. But also something that my dad really instilled with me is the idea that once you're not serving, the people in the military count on you, the general public, to be the ones that hold government accountable for how the military is used. Yeah, I would. I've never heard it said that way. But yeah, that's that's very true in the sense that I can, I can go out there and um, effectively jump multiple echelons of the chain of command and basically bother somebody with some issue politically. Like I can speak to elected representatives. I can can say a policy is foolish if I think so. And a guy serving, you know, my my prior self as a you know junior officer, as I got out as a captain uh, through a little more than three years ago, could not even do that to his battalion commander, much less the president or um, the politicians involved. So you do suddenly have this freedom to engage something, whereas people in the military are literally taking their their careers and their livelihoods in their own hands if they speak out along those lines because they're expressly forbidden from doing so. Right. Uh, so maybe now let's finally segue uh, to to General Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of holding people accountable, uh, <laughs> the the White House seems to want to have it both ways with Kelly, right? Um, in that uh, sort of he's supposed to be held to somehow above politics because he has had this stellar service. But at the same time, they want to borrow that valor mm-hmm. to give credibility to Trump. Yeah. And also I think that, um, that specifically with regard to Trump's recent problems with, uh, with this issue with this, uh, the soldiers killed in, in Niger and the, the subsequent fallout of it, they're leaning pretty hard on Kelly to both uh, brandish his military credentials and also to to effectively shut down criticism. I think that uh, what you saw in Kelly's press briefing in which he basically wouldn't call on people unless they knew they personally knew the family of someone who had died um, you know, in combat, 
was basically trying to shame journalists and shame civilians and say, how dare you question any of this? You don't know what it's like. And obviously Kelly, too, the fact that his son died in Afghanistan, he has uh, that personal connection to it that makes people very hesitant to say anything, even though you sort of you kind of get caught up in the moment and then you walk out of the room after you're like, that's kind of nuts. That's like not how a a civilian control of the military democracy is supposed to work. Right. And and I would say they've, they've attempted to, like, weaponize his grief, which is. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I would say so, too. And it, which and is grotesque, honestly. I mean, it's it, it, yeah. even if he's agreed to it just as a human being, <laughs> I find it ugly. No, I do, too. And I, I also think that. So I've seen a lot of situations in which, for example, um, the parents or relatives of people that I know that died in combat have been very outspoken or at least outspoken to some extent about um, the missions or the larger campaigns in which their their loved ones died. And I think that even when those people are kind of treading into territory where they're they're making accusations, people tend to treat them very lightly in the sense that they don't want to, they don't want to shout them down. They don't want to shut them down. They don't want to make them basically confront them in a way that's going to hurt them more. And which is to say that I've seen people basically kind of tread lightly and even ignore some pretty out there accusations because they know these people in real life and they don't want to, to hurt them. And so what's surprising to me is that all of a sudden when it's, when the, the family that is aggrieved is African-American, all of a sudden they're willing to just treat these people like dirt, treat these people like like they have no right to even feel grief in the first place, like they have no right to even feel anything besides respect that the president deigned to call them. Yeah, And that I think is, is really, really disturbing because I literally used to do a podcast with a guy who was a military judge advocate general actually in the Marine Corps. And like he had a woman that was, he was friends with who, I, I mean, I, I, I feel bad, but her son was implicated in that scandal where the Marines had, um, had urinated on, uh, on corpses of, of insurgents in Afghanistan. And, um, her son had been, uh, kicked out of the Marine Corps, I believe, or at least in some way had his career curtailed. And, uh, had later died of a drug overdose. And she basically said, Hillary Clinton demanded they prosecute these Marines. So Hillary Clinton killed my son. And this, this Jag would be like, look, she'll say this stuff on my Facebook page, but like, I really try to treat her with kid gloves because it's, it's just, it's so intense, you know, like I don't want to, to like harm her further. Mm-hmm. So to see that kind of thing, that level of respect, and then to see that exact same reaction turn around and people be like, no, these people are ungrateful. It's really disturbing to me. Magazines weave together great writing and beautiful photography to tell stories better. That's just a, that's just a sort of a general promotion of the of the the media form of magazine. I the love medium it. Medium of the magazine. I, they need it. You know, they do. magazines need help. Magazines need a champion. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I I don't know about you, but I do love magazines. Who like doesn't love a magazine? Thing, right. Um, and it always, even though I really came up in digital media, it always means more to me when I when my work appears in a magazine. Huh. But texture kind of, you know, bridges that gap. Like, because texture is the experience of reading a magazine, but, you know, on your tablet, which is so much easier. Uh, And you can also just, like, read one-off issues without paying the absurd cover price for a lot of these magazines. I shouldn't say absurd. Good journalism is expensive, and uh, you should pay for it. A good way (laughs) to pay for it. Is with texture. Would be texture, yeah. Because you get hundreds of magazines and I have the list and it's everything from InStyle and Maxim to The Atlantic and National Geographic, Bloomberg Businessweek, 
uh, shape, which is, I don't know about you guys, but I, I find some of the uh, personal fitness magazines, you don't, you, you don't need to buy every copy. Right, like it's the advice tends to be stay stay sort of the same. So it's kind of cool to be have occasional. I often think that uh, there's a that we all are kind of pretending that the reason we're not in the shape we want to be and we haven't lost the weight we want to lose is because we lack information. I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's a giant way of saying, oh, I just need to read more and then I'll have discipline. Yeah, <laughs> well, on. you can in this texture, you know, you can just dip in and out of dip in and your, out your fitness before magazines. you do dips. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so it's 200 premium magazines for $9.99 a month. And you will not believe this, John, but I have a promo code. Oh, good. Yes. Uh, you will get a free trial of Texture if you use promo code FRIENDS. Texture.com slash FRIENDS. Do it. Uh, and also, they were reminding us holidays are coming up and there are great gift options for Texture. If we're saying Merry are. Christmas. It's no longer illegal. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Here's some really cool magazines few things spring to mind. One is I'm old enough to remember um, how actually gently George Bush treated Cindy Sheehan, um, who podcast listeners may not remember who that is. Google it. Uh, She was a gold star mom who protested the Iraq war. Like she was in front of his, um, you know, Texas ranch. She camped out there for days and days and days. And he refused to say anything bad about her. Uh, his, his, his acolytes definitely were, were all well, his acolytes right. were all over it. But yeah. I mean, but he did the thing that we were yeah. supposed to be kind of a baseline presidential behavior. <laughs> you know? yeah. The thing that apparently proves so difficult. Right. And then in the race uh, part of this is incredibly important. I encourage people to go listen to Jamel Bowie's last episode of um, the Trump cast, where he talked to a fellow African-American um, journalist who's also a military uh, historian, I believe, and they talked about, and, and veteran, and they talked about how the language that, that Trump and his acolytes are using is attempting to put patriotism and being black or being a person of color in opposition. And, and, that you only can be one or the other. And and I, I agree with that assessment. And I would also say that the thing that really stuns me about seeing that trotted out is that that's not really representative of the military that no, I know. No, no. One of the many things we, I hope I'd hope to get to with you is this Military Times poll about white supremacy that yeah. I don't know how this isn't like on cable news 24 seven because it's mind blowing and shocking and sad. Uh, but um 42% of non-white troops said they've personally experienced an example of white nationalism while serving. While in the military, yeah, that, that, that does not surprise me. And I think that, um, I think that it really depends on, uh, that in some units, I think people are more brazen about it. I think that, um, you know, I, I served in an infantry unit, an airborne infantry unit in Alaska, and um, the infantry in general combat arms tends to be primarily, I mean, heavily white uh, to some extent, Hispanic, but, but primarily white, but it also depends on where, where you go in places in like Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, you, you find that there are actually more people of color in the units, but, um, by and large, those combat arms units tend to be pretty white. And I mean, I had soldiers, I had one soldier who was an NCO. He had been in the, um, 82nd before, and we were in the gym one time and he had these strange tattoos that looked like black bars on his arms. And he was like, yeah, I had to get my uh, I had to get my my Nazi tattoos covered up before they let me enlist. Oh my god! And I mean, I never heard anything from him that led me to believe that he still harbored that. I don't know. I, I guess in a sense, you know, I was 24. I, I didn't really feel like asking. But in retrospect, I was just like, that's 
that's kind of crazy. But also, I mean, in those days, um, there were a lot of standards that were relaxed as far as allowing people to enlist. And um, you'd, you'd encounter people like that where I would, I would like to hope that in years past, they wouldn't have been allowed to. But then again, or they wouldn't have been allowed to enlist. But then again, a guy that I uh, follow and I'm friends with in real life, his name is Dan Kim. He's a, a writer uh, and he's worked in the restaurant industry, but he's also a Korean-American army vet. He's a vet of the war in Somalia. Um, he basically she said, this is nothing new. And he served in the early nineties and he's like, you wouldn't even believe the kind of stuff that non-white soldiers put up with that. We just knew, we knew there were places you couldn't go. We knew there were units, there were people that like, you wouldn't get a fair shake. And there were places even on post where chances were good. If you went in and you weren't white, you'd get beaten up. Yeah. And this military times, um, survey obviously bears that out. There's the 42% of non-white troops who say they've personally experienced examples of white nationalism. And then there's the nearly one in four who say they've seen it. Um, and yeah. that this survey, at least those responding rated white nationalism as a bigger threat to national security than Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan. So there's this interesting yeah. tension, right? Um, because I feel like the military does also have some of our best. Uh, and and some of the most justice-minded people um, among us, right? Like, I think the military does a pretty good job, and I look to my dad as an example of this, of sort of in an apolitical framework, although I guess everything's political, like wanting to judge people by, you know, content of their character, right? Yeah, and I, I think also that um, it, it's a lot harder. I mean, it's not by, by no means impossible, but it's a lot harder for uh people in the military to look at a directive towards um, being apolitical or being uh, refusing to, to, to make decisions based on race or creed and just like wink, wink, nudge, nudging and ignoring it the way that it happens in the right. civilian world. Exactly. Like, like my, the, the it's military, hard, it's harder for people to get away with that. And so as a result, like you actually see integration in ways that you don't in the civilian world. Right. I mean, I, I said this on Twitter. I had more black and Hispanic bosses in my first unit in the army in my first three years out of the seven I was in uniform than I ever had prior to or since my military career. And, I mean, and I'm, I'm from the Midwest and I live in New York, but I mean, I, I feel like that's probably typical of a lot of white people that serve in the army. Like that's the most integrated job they'll ever be in. I, that's definitely true. And the military does a really good job at integrating all kinds of people, right? Um, they integrated uh, racially um, yeah. and, and did it by fiat because they had, they, they can, it's the military. Um, you know, uh, don't ask, don't tell went over real smooth. And this, and transgender actually was looking like it was going to be just fine. You know, before it got politicized, but, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the, the the funny thing was the the revocation of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and you know, the allowing um, LGB as they they used to use that acronym LGB, omitting the T specifically <laughs> because the policy hadn't changed yet. But I remember when that happened in you know 2011, and, and people people on the right were predicting this apocalypse, of course, and it was literally a non-event because yeah. everybody knew who was gay in their unit. Everybody, they just those people weren't allowed to live an open life. They they had to be paranoid, basically. They yeah. had to be less, less their command suddenly be in a position to be like, well, they're forcing our hands. We know now, so we have to kick you out. <laughs> I, I mean, and I saw that happen. I saw people get kicked out of my first unit, and it was really shocking to me. Mm-hmm. And so when that happened, it was just kind of a sigh of relief. Yeah. It was really a, it was a non-event, whereas on the, in the outside world, all of a sudden it was made into this massively political social engineering thing when gay people have been in the military since militaries have existed. And also the military is social engineering. 
I hate to break that to people, but like it's not a natural habitat, right? Like it is an engineered environment. That's what makes it the military. (laughs) The the notion that that 45-year-old men who have been in the military since they were 18 and when they enlisted had to call me sir when I was 23 because I was a second lieutenant, even if they were like sergeant's major, that's insane. That's so beyond that there's no logic to that but that's that's how the military rank structure works yeah so in the same vein it's like none of none of it's none of it's just occurs in nature like it's completely engineered you're right um and i want to hit one more thing from the military times poll which is um something that uh an air force general actually called out as being one of the most shocking things to him which is that trump's approval rating is 48 among enlisted personnel and 30 Mm -hmm. among officers to put that in perspective um, Obama's approval rate among officers was 48%. Yep. Uh, he was not popular with enlisted. It's true. No. Uh, but he, w- but it was not as, the split was not as crazy. Um, and the Air Force Colonel, I want to read his, um, what he said. I never thought that you would have this kind of disparity in numbers like that. When you have a hierarchy like we have, part of it is there needs to be respect for the chain of command. Yeah. Well, I, I also think that, um, I wonder how much of that is based on, I mean, there have been things that if you are an army officer, if you are a military officer, some of the things that have happened in terms of decorum and norms have been pretty shocking. And I mean, people that I would have considered relatively apolitical or even even right-leaning, people that are still in have, have spoken to me offline and been like, this is kind of crazy what's going on right now. Um, so I think that that once again, um, there may be a split there because some people only pass in passing follow any of the news. I don't know, but I, I do know that like that that stark split you just described. I mean, you may get to this too. Is also you see that across different branches of service. The Marines apparently love Trump, whereas the Air Force and the Navy, I think, was overwhelmingly negative. Yeah, the Marines love him. I actually should correct myself. It's forty three percent approval rating among officers for Obama, which is still. Pretty high. And actually, a listed approval rating of Obama was 34%, which is, yes, lower than Trump, but that's only a nine-point spread. Yeah. And now it's double that. Yeah. And and, and I think that, um, I mean, I'll give you an example, a couple of examples of things that really shocked friends of mine that are still in uniform. Uh, I remember getting some texts and phone calls after the speech at the CIA headquarters in mm-hmm. front of the, the monument to their fallen CIA agents. Um, that, that rubbed people a lot of people the wrong way. Um, things like that where folks who might have been willing to give give him the benefit of the doubt suddenly turned around and thought like, okay, maybe this is this is actually real. Maybe this is really going to be this beyond the pale. Um so so who knows? I mean I, I'd like to hope that more people pay attention to the actual policy and not the sort of like the optics involved, the sort of like the the myth making that goes on, how he's how how his you know the political campaign has sold him to people in the military as the person who's going to fix your problems. I don't know though because I mean I, I I wouldn't I remember some of the commentary you'd hear about President Obama when I was in and there were times when you had to pull people aside and be like, dude, that's that's the commander in chief. Like mm-hmm. you really can't be talking that way. Yeah, and I, I guess here's an interesting kind of problematize this a little bit because, you know, I have an instinct to take the words of of, uh, or take the opinions of of people serving in the military. My instinct as an American is to take them more seriously. But we're just talking about how we shouldn't necessarily they shouldn't necessarily be political. I would like to say two things about that. One is that I feel like the approval rating among military folks of our of our commander in chief. um, What I hope that that reflects is trust. You know, yeah. Likewise. Yeah. I mean, all things considered, I'd like to hope that they have faith in their chain of command. Yeah. And and that's what is so scary. That's what that 
Air Force colonel was saying, right, that's frightening, is that if only 30 percent of officers ag- approve of his behavior, that could be bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because ultimately you know. you're getting to the situation in which the military is, is subordinate to, to the civilian government. And what people think that, I mean, in the same vein that there were people, um, let's say, amongst centrists who, in a way, felt a bit of relief when General Kelly, General Kelly became the uh, um, Trump's chief of staff, or even when Jim Mattis accepted the role as Secretary of Defense, because they thought, okay, well, at least these people, they're used to the to the the being apolitical, being professionals. Maybe they'll bring order to this. And it's like, well, maybe so, but at the same time, maybe you also are going to see the military just starting to disregard civilian guidance, which is a very bad road to go down. Right. I mean, that and that is that's what is the most frightening about where we are in this current moment. And I I want to talk about this idea that we hold up, um, you know, veterans and members of the military as the assumption that they're more honorable, the assumption that that they will follow the rules. Now, to a certain extent, obviously. There's something to that. But I also feel like like one thing that, that, that Kelly did that I actually I actually at first appreciated it when he asked people to hold up their hands to whether or not they knew a Gold Star family, because mm-hmm. I thought the point he was making is one that I like to make myself and I think is worth making all the time, which is that not many Americans know someone in the military, period. Yeah, that is very true. Yes. And, and I think that's a shame <laughs> for many reasons. Um First of all, because it's it's good to have a wide variety of people in your world and also to know what what serving is really like. And yeah. then because the closer it also gives you perspective on on the not greatness of the military. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I think it it it, you, it makes you dispose of the notion that things would be better if they were run like the military or that everyone in the military is some exemplar of whatever virtue you want to ascribe to them. I mean, anybody who's been in the military for, say, more than a couple of months has probably met someone who's been kicked out for wrongdoing or for generally immoral conduct or, or unacceptable conduct. I mean, I know I've I've seen people go to jail for things they did in the military. It's not it's a job like anything else. It's you wouldn't I mean I I hate to say this and maybe maybe I'm uh, I'm in a position to say it because I, I served but we used to joke that amongst friends that, that being in the army was like it was like the post office with guns. And it's like <laughs> and, and ultimately what I'm saying in that is that people who do public service are doing something oftentimes for less reimbursement or less compensation than um, than they would if they were in the private sector. There's there's dignity, there's respectability in that. But like you wouldn't look at somebody who just because they had a public sector job and say that person is indicative of literally every virtue. They're the best people ever, regardless of what they actually do as people. And so it seems kind of absurd to do the same thing with people in the military. I mean, people in the military are this, they, they 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 come from America, wherever they're from. <laughs> you know, they're they they're raised in the same country. They're uh, oftentimes they're immigrants too. But like they're they're from they're people, you know, they're, they're not, they, they aren't carved from stone and, you know, brought forth to exemplify all of the things that we want to want to aspire to. Like, that's just kind of insane. Everlane, would you buy a t-shirt for $50, even if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. Oh, I wouldn't. No. Uh, with Everlane, you never need to overpay for quality clothes. Their thing is transparency for premium products. Cool. Not everything is made in the same place, and they let you know where it's made. They have pictures of the factories that they use, uh, so you know uh, what the conditions are. Uh, and they price things. They, they're transparent about how they price things. And they make what they call premium essentials. They're kind of the building blocks of a great wardrobe. 
They recently started selling jeans. I have several things from them. Cool. Uh, including like this really nice uh, cashmere sweater. And then also their shoes are great. Uh, I get compliments on the shoes um, from Everlane every time I wear them. And because Everlane sells directly to you, that's right. They have no real life stores. Their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Anna, would you say that they're cutting out the middleman? <laughs> they are. They are cutting out the middleman and they look better and they cost less and they last longer. And that is quite true. And again, I think what I like best about them is it's sort of what I at least used to think of as being somewhat preppy, but really it's just the basic building blocks of a, you know, kind of cool wardrobe. It's the staples that you you go to again and again. Jeans, uh, crew neck sweaters, um, these shoes that I really love, they're called the day heel which um, is a kind of just a low wedge heel with a, they're just super comfortable leather shoes. I also have a promo code for this one. Cool. It's friends. The promo code is friends. Yeah. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. That's everlane.com slash friends. Everlane.com slash friends. Everlane.com slash friends. I think it speaks to Americans own, oh God, how do I say this? Um, reluctance to put themselves in harm's way that we so fetishize people who do, right? Um, And I think that there's this interesting tension that I I don't necessarily think we need to solve as a culture, but that we need to know exists, which is to pay special um, respect to people Mm -hmm. who volunteer to get shot at because our president says you've got to do that. That is different than the post office. Uh, And... (laughs) And that is something beyond, right? That is no other real, except, you know, police officers, other law enforcement officers. But so to volunteer to do that, even if you're a supply sergeant, you are in a position where you might get shot at, right? So you want to pay a special amount of respect and um, deference to that. But at the same time, know that within, underneath this umbrella of service and, and general respect for the military, there are individual people who de- who deserve to be held up to scrutiny for their actions. Absolutely. And and I think that, that the notion that somebody doesn't have to prove themselves um, as an expert, as someone who's competent because of, uh, because they served the military, I feel like that's a very generous way of looking at it, but that's not how it works when you're in the military. Once you're in that uniform, and we, I had this thought, you know, years ago, probably right before I got out, that people, when you're in the army at least, because we love uniform flair, we wear badges and tabs for everything, you know, when I walk into a room as, a, as an army captain, the first thing people see is the rank and then they see the whatever badges and tabs I have. But to a civilian, they just see the uniform. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing is that it's it's like this binary that if you're if you're not in the military, everyone in the military is whatever their branch, whatever their rank, whatever their role, their job, et cetera. That they're that they are they're just in that category, and it's it's like it's this sort of unknowably difficult thing. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm oversimplifying, but whereas once you're in, there's good soldiers and bad soldiers. There's people who do really dangerous jobs and less dangerous jobs, and there's gradations to it. And and just being. Uh, X rank or just being in the uniform doesn't really mean anything until you you do your job. I just had a conversation with John Levitt where we were, what we got around to was talking about how having a diverse set of voices at the table isn't just about like looking good. You know, it's not just virtue signaling. You actually usually can turn out a better product of whatever it is you're doing if you have lots of different experiences to draw from, right? Like in journalism, especially 
uh, having people of color at the table means you don't miss certain stories. Having disabled people at the table means you don't miss certain stories. And a lot of journalists can be kind of blind to the fact that their one experience leads them to make mistakes. Yeah. And I feel like military is almost in that category of diverse set of voices you want to be listening to or at least know about. I mean, there's been a number of cases even recently where, I mean, even when it comes down to something like, it's unfortunate that people's military experience winds up being drawn upon when there's like a mass shooting and they want to talk about like the basically military grade weapons that people are able to own. But you'll see a lot of mistakes where you think to yourself, like, if they had veterans on staff, they had people who knew this stuff, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be, you know, making, having to make these corrections. Right. And this is exactly what you're describing, that like, it's not just... It's 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 an inclusivity thing, but it's also in terms of just general professionalism. It's it's kind of co- covering you from making mistakes of oversimplification or of omission, right? And making factual mistakes here, like we're again we're we're getting away from this idea that they should be automatically valorized. But yes, you should definitely draw upon the expertise, right, and the experience yeah. of these people, uh, because you will you will get better information. That's something actually the military knows pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> the military is pretty well, good at, at getting information. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I guess in a sense, um, it, it, being if you're if you're a veteran and you're you're, you're left leaning or, or further to the left, you're going to find that there are many people who are quick to to kind of jump down your throat about how you must be stolen valor, or you must have been a terrible soldier because basically you don't fit the the sort of the mold of. Um, you know, hard-edged person who's unafraid to say, basically say racist and judgmental things about literally everyone. Like this notion that we all have to be basically hateful caricatures. It's kind of, it's kind of unfortunate because, I mean, it just, that, that notion that everyone is this very kind of stereotypically right-wing conservative, religious, judgmental, closed-minded, et cetera, that caricature of the military, like that, that exists. It's a stereotype that exists for a reason, but it's not everybody. And it, it really has no correspondence with what I, what I experienced in the sense that like uh, there was such a wide variety of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is actually one of the most diverse workplaces. It's a, it's the highest employer that the largest employer of trans people, or sorry, was yeah. the largest employer of trans people in the world or not the world, the country, um, which makes sense if you think about it, because it's a yeah. place. And also, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's in a lot of cases. I mean, I think about soldiers of mine who went on to careers in the military or like I have one soldier who um, he works uh, as an electrical engineer now. He went to school on the GI Bill. He actually was wounded in combat um, and received a Purple Heart. But I mean, he's from a small town in Florida and graduated from high school. And his options were basically work in service jobs, like working in village pantry or, you know, at Target. And I mean, I know I'm not making this up. I mean, this is, we talked about his life story before, um, but he got out he went to the military, he spent four years in, got out, went to school, and now he's an engineer. And it was, it was a gateway for him into uh, a different, it, it, basically into a, a different level of opportunity that probably based on where he was from would have been much more difficult, which is not to say impossible at all, but it would have been much more difficult. And so in a way, like the military draws in people from a variety of backgrounds for a variety of reasons. The one thing I guess I might want to revisit, uh, just because I thought it was a great point that you made when you were talking about this crazy viral, uh, you know, mini essay, or I guess it was almost like a FAQ that this guy wrote about, hey, yeah. liberals, listen to me about, yeah, yeah. about the military, um, that he he said something about how, like, you know, the special forces people are the shit, right? Like, they're the ones who really, they're the ones who are real Republicans and don't listen mm-hmm. to the, you, you, you've referenced this before, like, 
this the people who are non-combat, like maybe they're not conservative, but the people who matter are. Yeah, of course, yeah. That the people who matter are the people that supply the people in the front. <laughs> we actually, we, Francis and I on the show made that exact comment. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, it's it's really good to have direct action guys, and I mean, and oftentimes they are the the, the main effort, but um, they're not getting where they're going without the things they need. And ultimately, like he said, like if I get if I need if, if I need a door kicked in, yes, I uh, I call up those guys. But like if my pay is messed up, I don't call the Green Berets to fix my messed up pay. <laughs> I call the finance office. You know, it takes all kinds of people. People. Right. And also, I think that um, this is maybe a straight, maybe this is a good place to kind of end the conversation, which is that uh, I have talked to other liberal types who have a problem with the whole stand in the airport and applaud the service member uh, or, or give up the service. You, it sounds like maybe you don't like that either. I have a I have an opinion that may be contrary to yours. Um, um, so I, I had it happen to me a number of times. Uh-huh. Um, uh, primarily when I was coming back from deployment. I deployed to Afghanistan in 09 and in October of 09, actually, I came to New York to visit a friend on two weeks of leave from Afghanistan. And basically when you're traveling, you are in uniform until you get to your, you're supposed to until you get to your final destination. And um, I mean, I appreciated it, but it was, there was one time when it did feel genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other times when it just felt like people kind of doing it because they, they felt as though either they were obligated troop. to or like it was a, and I, I mean, I appreciated it, but like, I'd much more rather if somebody did that, if they would talk to me and then like have a conversation as opposed to just like coming up, shake my hand and walking away. Right. Um, I, I, I'll tell you this much. It's, it's the thing that people are aware of and it's difficult because it's not, I don't know, it's not like a overtly bad thing, but it's a thing that like, sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. And like, I've had bosses, guys who've spent, you know, most of their adult lives in the military who make it a point to basically always bring civilian clothes anytime they go on some sort of temporary duty assignment or anywhere they might be in, in, in public because they, it, they are made uncomfortable by that. And it's not to say that people shouldn't if they feel like it, but I just think that no one should feel obligated to do it. That's the thing. Right. No one should feel as though like begrudgingly, like, oh, it's time to stand for, for whatever. Like I'm ultimately people in the military are still, um, they're still human. They're still regular Americans like anybody else. So my opinion on this is, I guess it actually lines up pretty well with what what you had to say there, Um, which is, I think it is much more meaningful to actually talk to the person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think it's legitimate to say thank you for your service, no matter where they are, because of this idea that it's the supply people, you know, it's the people who make the wheels turn who are just as important. I think it's cool to ask someone what they do yeah, and to thank them for that specifically, you know, and and also because we're an all volunteer army, like you being in the, in the uniform means that I don't have to be. I mean, you might not say that exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, also, I would say, too, that, I mean, so. I had a had a, a sergeant major who addressed our our whole unit one time, and I was really taken aback by the speech because he basically said, "I get it. People have grown to comfortable with this notion that everywhere you go, you deserve handshakes and first class upgrades." He's like, "But you are volunteers in the sense that you volunteer to enlist, but volunteers don't typically get paid, and you do. So you should be the ones being more courteous. You should be the ones who actually are, are making a better name for yourselves and not expecting people to do you favors." And it was not a really well-received thing. I mean, people weren't going to disrespect the guy. He was the command sergeant major of the battalion. But uh, I was actually I was actually more in line with that statement, I think, than the notion that people should, by default, have to, like, you know, make some gesture of fealty to me. Because ultimately, it, 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 I don't want people to, to, to see a uniform and suddenly be like, I'm made uncomfortable because this is a statement of this person's um, superiority or valor or something along those lines. 
that's why I think it's cool to actually, if you're going to do that, and if you're interested in that, and I would encourage people to do that, to like actually have a conversation. Yeah. If they're into it, like some people, you know, whatever. I don't always like to talk to people I'm yeah. next to, but um, to, <laughs> yeah. to make it a more meaningful gesture, don't just give up your seat. Don't just, don't just applaud. Actually yeah. show interest in this person as a human being. You know? Yeah, and, and I think also that um, just to remember that that uh, people people in the military also are maybe harried and tired and getting mm-hmm. to where they're going and stressed out and that kind of a thing. And that you know, it, it, it that sometimes for better or worse, just a nod and knowing that the person acknowledges you, but they aren't going to like take up your time if you're busy. Like that can be, I can, I really appreciated that sometimes. And I know it sounds strange because it's, it's not like I don't want people to talk to me, but more like when you know that people are going to be like, Hey, what's up? And then let you go about your business. That actually can be really nice too. Yeah. I, it or not. I, I, I totally see that as someone who doesn't like to talk to people. Um, <laughs> yeah. I picked a weird profession by the way, uh, t- <laughs> for that bias, but no, likewise. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Nate. Um, people should listen to your podcast, which is called hell of a way to die. And um, I'm, perhaps we will have you back. It, it seems like for better or for worse, and probably for worse, um, our uh, national conversation about the role of military in this particular administration, uh, it's going to be an ongoing conversation. It's yeah, apparently going to continue. But thank yeah. you so much, Anna, for having me. I really appreciate it. And that is it for the show this week. Thank you for you, superfan, making it to the end of the podcast. As usual, I encourage you to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And also to check out the expanded show notes at crooked.com, where we will post links to articles that have been discussed and longer bios of our guests. I also highly encourage you, if you have a question along the lines of our listener question before, please send it to us at withfriendslikepod at gmail. You can also reach the show via our Twitter handle, which is crooked underscore friends. And it's been another one of those weeks. Congratulations. You made it to the other side. And we will see you next week. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.